Hi folks, I'm going to whisper. Not really whisper actually, but um, I'm going to say straight away, um, the reason I'm sounding so snotty and uh, throaty is because I've tested positive for COVID. So I've been coping with that for the last couple of days. It's not nice, but you know, um, I feel lucky that I am able to cope with it. I'm at home, isolating, um, and thankfully we're all isolating, looking after each other and everybody's fine. Um, and yeah, just makes me very appreciative, to be honest, of, of, you know, how lucky we are really. But, um, also very lucky that I've recorded quite a lot of interviews, um, which is great and able to share and keep the podcast going as well. So it's wonderful. I did think of trying to bring you this with a bit more of a, um, lady who does the MasterChef voiceover. So I would kind of do it like that, where it was a half speak. Half whisper, but there's no way I could keep that going. Uh, but I want to tell you all about our latest guests on this bumper run of soundtracking, who are Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns, who have formed a fine screenwriting partnership on Edgar's latest film, Last Night in Soho. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it's about, as it really is one of those movies that benefits from you seeing it with next to no prior knowledge. So don't read any reviews, don't read too much about it, just go and see it. What I will tell you is that it stars Thomasine e. McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, Terrence Stamp and the late, great Dame Diana Rigg in her final performance. It's got the most fabulous 60s soundtrack and is scored by our old, wonderful friend, not so old, but just he's been our friend for a long time, the wonderful Stephen Price. And it's with one of Stephen's cues that we'll start, entitled The Beginning. have you both together yes (laughs) I know this is great hey congratulations on this film I loved it I I kind of deliberately didn't read anything I didn't really watch anything I watched the trailer once and then didn't want to watch anymore because I kind of wanted to go in blind really with it to really experience it and I would thoroughly recommend that everybody else does that too because it feels like such a unique film. It feels like I've never seen anything like it, really. I hope you take that as a compliment. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. massive compliment. I think it's that thing where sort of, you know, in, in a way it's sort of one of the inspirations of it is, is, you know, the movie starts as one thing and then slowly sort of like morphs into something else. And I, I feel in it, you know, almost like the entire movie is about, you know, the difference between perception and reality. And 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 the movie in in a way is like the same thing. So it's like you can even <laughs> see that in the trailer. Like it's like, oh, this looks like a nice film. Oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> false sense of security. Um, but let's go back. How did you two both end up working together on on this film? Because Chris, if you don't mind, just me getting to say within the podcast. Because obviously, you had Sam on to talk about 1917, and we we haven't spoken to you. But I just wanted to say massive congratulations on on that and and all the the success that was so deserved for for that film oh thank you well actually sam funnily enough introduced us 
Sam said to Edgar, have you met Christy? You should. You'll get on like a house on fire. And he was damn right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a chronology of it is that um, I, I had been thinking about the movie for a long time, more than 10 years, because I had started kind of amassing the songs to either be in the film or the songs that I would listen to to kind of get me in the mood for the movie for like over a decade. But, but I, I think the first time I vocalized it to like Naira Park, my producer, about it being something I wanted to do was maybe like 2012. It was before the world's end. And um, I just had this feeling of not just the kind of movie I wanted to make, but I, I knew what the story was as well. And, and that in itself is born through a sort of like a, a, a strange obsession with the decade, you know, a decade that I never lived in and trying to kind of like, I guess, kind of work out myself like, why am I always fantasizing about traveling back to a decade in which I never lived? And if I'm thinking about it so much, am I, is that me failing to deal with the modern world? Am I rejecting the modern world and ret- retreating into some Soho fantasy? And I had the whole idea for the story and I kind of had it mapped out. And, and for a long time, it existed as like my pitch and like the sort of the story document. And I would tell it to various people along the way of, hey, I have this idea for a movie. But the, the, even before Christy came on board, the other really big part of it was that um, the first thing that I did because I was busy on what would be two other movies in the interim, hired a researcher, Lucy Pardy, now like a BAFTA award-winning casting director who I'd worked with, um, we'd worked with on Tack the Block she came on as a researcher and so basically every facet of the story which had been based on what i had read about the time and sometimes those things especially you know that that some of that is out there and some of those things are kind of second or third hand stories and sometimes it's like even worse which is i think has now changed it's like just malicious gossip where the victims themselves have not actually been able to speak or not had a public forum to do so so the first thing to do was like to research every aspect of the, the script. And so Lucy conducted so many interviews of people who lived and worked in Soho at the time, lived and worked in Soho now. And then even going beyond that to sort of stuff in terms of like people coming from outside London to London, both me and Christy have that experience. Me too. But to, yeah, and you too as well. But to sort of to talk about contemporary students actually talk to London College of Fashion students now about is their experience the same experience I had in 1994 when I moved to London? So over the, those years, I had this kind of phone book sized tome of like research and I had the story. And then there would be like random encounters, which would not random encounters, but like things that would happen. That would <laughs> That's all for you. <laughs> like still before Christy, amazingly, six years ago, I saw The Witch at Sundance. In fact, I was on the jury that gave it best director to Robert Eggers and saw Anya in that movie and said, she needs to be the lead of my Soho movie, which at that point didn't have a name. I met her for coffee in Los Angeles and I wasn't planning to, but I told her the entire plot of the film. And she went, whoa, I want to be part of that movie. And I said, well, as soon as there's a script, I'll let you know. And then Later, what's interesting at that point, and we could talk about this later, she was going to play the part of Eloise. Oh, wow. And another year later, when I'm maybe like editing Baby Driver in London, Sam has introduced me to Christy. And in our first meeting in Dean Street itself in Soho, um, we were, I think we were in the Soho house and Christy mentioned, oh, I used to live above Sunset Strip, the strip club across the street. 
when I worked at the Toucan for five years. So as soon oh as she, my God. And I'm going to let her tell the rest of the story in a second. <gasps> but as soon as she said that, I said, oh, I have a movie that I want to tell you about because I want to know what you think. You know, I, I just, you know, casually dropped in. I live above that strip club. I worked to the Irish bar. I think I had just stopped working at the Irish bar, much to my great sadness. I, I miss working so you can bed. Because, oh, I've got an idea. It's set in kind of like, you know, the dingy, like parts of Soho you don't really see. And I was like, oh, I know it. <laughs> I know it really well. So we went on a night out. Uh, and we went to a few of the sort of less glamorous establishments, shall we say. And we ended up in the basement at Trisha's. And in this little corner, he told me the entire story. And, and you know, before I was working on it, I was just holding on to the table, like listening totally and utterly entranced by it. And then about nine months later, he phoned me up. It was right before Christmas. It was a great Christmas present. Thank you. Um, he was like, do you want to write it with me? And I was like, yeah, yes, I do. That's very easy. Quick yes. How does that work then, writing it together? You're sitting in a room together, like with a playlist on and chatting away and yeah. Yes. The number one thing I had to do was fly back from Los Angeles to London. Because <laughs> like, was like, I, I can write it, but I, I have to do something in six weeks. Could you come now? And I was like, yes, I can come now. So I came back to London. I, we rented an office in Soho and I put all of my index cards on the walls and had like the, the research and all the music. And I was a bit worried that like Christy would come into the room and thought, I think it looks like John Doe's apartment in seven. (laughs) Too much information, like the scrawlings or somebody trying to catch the Zodiac killer. So um, I was a bit worried that she might turn on her heels and walk straight out again. No, it did. It did look exactly like that. But that's my aesthetic. I love that. I love serial killer chic clutter (laughs) is how my is how anyone would describe my house, I think. But, But he had the playlist for me before we even started writing. So I remember... I cycled into our office in Soho that first morning, like listening to the playlist that was going to be in the film and is in the film. Are they, are they all in there, the songs that were on that original playlist? Yeah, the one you sent me. Yeah, I mean, the sort of all the key ones were in there. And then usually if there was like some new scene, like for instance, like the outline of the movie that I had is very similar to what the finished film is. But the thing that Christy kind of added is that there were sort of some expansions of scenes. Like, And the main thing was that in my original idea, I had sort of conceived of the 60s scenes being like with music, but no dialogue. And Christy, the first thing that you said when we were writing together was that your first note was that I think you need to hear Sandy speak because I don't think you can fall in love with her like Eloise does without having some dialogue. And you were absolutely 200% right. And in fact, then writing those 60 scenes is like the most fun bit, especially the initial ones where everything's nice and glamorous (laughs) and before things start to get heavy. But Then the other key part of it was that we added a a section like you suggested having one more 60 section and it was the audition section. So that was something that was not in my original outline, the the scene where Anya Taylor-Joy auditions at the Rialto and sings a song. 
What a I voice. Don't know at that point that we knew whether Anya could sing or not. No. We just assumed <laughs> we just assumed that she could. We didn't know that she had a real life. Oh song. my god, it's amazing. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got troubles, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalks where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown, things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure. Downtown, everyone's waiting for you. Well, on the soundtrack, like. Uh, there's going to be, there's more than one cover version that she does in full. And in fact, I don't know when this goes out, but there's going to be a, a video that's about to drop, which I think will set the internet on fire. <laughs> like, but the thing was, is that, so in that case is I had my kind of A-list of songs. And then when Christy suggested this audition scene, I said she should sing Petula Clark's Downtown. So it was that thing where I kind of had the reserve list as well, the things that we hadn't found a place for. And then not in a dissimilar way to Baby Driver, with some sequence in, in the films, it's, I mean, I hesitate to say, because I think some people think that the playlist exists before the script. It's not really that. It's, it's more like the songs are like post-it notes to remind me to make the movie. <laughs> so for like years, if I'd suddenly hear Ardeen Taylor's There's a Ghost in My House, I'd be like, ah, oh, I have to make Last Night. <laughs> There's a ghost in my house. The ghost of your memory. of some of the songs I would hear the song and I'd get like almost like a, a movie version of synesthesia where I'm sort of seeing the scene like Eloise dreams it so that first Cafe de Paris sequence is something where I kind of like it's in my head and I can see it like she sees it a long time before a single word is written down to the credit of everybody involved in that scene choreographer cinematographer, production designer, what what we made exceeds what I had in my head. So which is always a nice feeling. It's so brilliant because I watched it at Universal and then I came out and cut through in Soho, the little alleyway, and kind of almost felt like I was having a real nostalgia trip as well. And I think that for anybody who's made that trip to London and moved to this great city, it's a real love letter in a way, where, for part of the film anyway, um, you know, in terms of that, because... I, it does like the Tukin. I remember nearly getting a job at the Tukin, even when I was doing <laughs> radio, and and I spent so much time there. And even things like it just spurred so many memories of like nights and so when I first moved here, and the seediness was the attraction of it, and it was kind of what you weirdly wanted to be embroiled into a point in a way. Like I remember, like with a boyfriend at the time, going on a in a shopping trolley down Soho and ending up in like a peep sh- in a peep show and stuff and all that kind of stuff, and. 
it's it's there's an amazing physicality to the film that just takes you on this amazing amazing journey and I imagine that for both of you there's an element of your obviously you know Chris you talked about you working living above and working in the Tukin but there's an element of you both in this really really personally as well in your own journeys with this great town with this particular part of this town yeah and the thing is there's also it's a really complicated relationship with it because it's like you know Soho could easily be completely gentrified and you don't really want that to happen it would be sad if that all of it went away but at the same time you're not condoning any of it it's very it's a very tricky thing like if it had become if it became completely disneyfied like times square in new york has it would be a sad thing but on the same side i'm not necessarily going to support all of the individuals involved i mean there was a point actually when we were making the movie where there was one location that we were trying to redress into the 60s and i kept asking about this building if if this building was on board and eventually the location manager, Camilla Stevenson, says, we as a film company cannot give money to that, the people who run that building. Just on a, on a legal level, we cannot give them money. So it's, it's, it's complicated. And it's that strange thing. Is I moved to London in the sort of mid-90s where the red light district was so much bigger in Soho. And there's even that strange thing of like just the sense memory of I can't walk down Great Windmill Street, which is now all boutiques and restaurants without hearing the lady who would stand outside the clip joint saying, sexy bed show, sir? Sexy bed show? Interest you in a sexy bed show, sir? And it's like, she's long, long, long gone. But I can't walk down that street without hearing her say it. And I know it was more than one lady, but I imagine it was the same lady every time. (laughs) Did you, you know, when you were talking about you had this film idea and then when, when you came together to write it, was the film always this kind of journey of genre almost really as well yeah the ending was always the ending I think sometimes when people see it they kind of think that maybe we were like kind of um sort of just you know kind of seeing you know it, it turning into something else during the writing but the, the the destination was always what it was and I, I think in a way that maybe like some other movies and maybe this one is 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 maybe even more of a slow burn than some of the other movies I've done where it starts as one thing and becomes another but in a way, I wanted that to sort of mirror Eloise's journey down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. is that, you know, you, you, I mean, it's maybe one of the things like you said, or you watched it without really seeing anything is that by doing that, you go on the trip with her because Thomas and Mackenzie is in every single scene and like, and you are, you know, you are kind of experiencing it with her sometimes literally in terms of like, like her, you are a voyeur in these 60s scenes where she is in the scene, but she can't necessarily do anything i mean in a way that's my to me that's where the nightmare starts is like this idea of like if you went back in time but you couldn't change the future at some point that would start to become a nightmare because in back to the future martin mcfly can go back to the 50s and change the 80s but in this movie she goes back to the 60s and she can't stop she cannot avert disaster mm. even if she sees like sort of something which she, she wants to step in and prevent something from happening. She cannot do that. And I think really that's a thing of me trying to <laughs> deal with my own feelings about nostalgia or even just dwelling on the past and wanting to say, I wish I could go back and do that again. And it's like, you're having to, maybe this is me being on the psychiatrist character, <laughs> the movie saying like, 
You have to move on in the present. There's nothing you can do about the past. You don't live in the 60s, Edgar. You've got to move on as much as you want to. You have to live in the now, just like your past says. <laughs> we, we, I mean, the sad thing is, not sad thing, but we both like still live in, you know, we work in Soho. I don't live far away. So I actually see locations from the movie every day. So there's a point where like uh, I'm still haunted by it. Yeah, I walk by I walk by at least four of the locations every day going to my office. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good times, good times. I also think, see, the sort of the the changing of genres in the film reflects, you said this once, reflects like a night out in Soho. You start with really good. Absolutely. Interest. At one point something takes a turn and then often someone is bleeding. Um, so it like it it definitely listen, you've all been in nights out in Soho that many like that. Sometimes there's a fire. So it's like you get that sort of feel to it, which I think. Yeah, it's, it's a right. There was one. There was one review. It was Wendy Ede in Screen Daily, and I actually I don't know her, but I emailed her afterwards because she came out with sometimes somebody articulates the film better than you ever have, and they said like any great night in Soho, it ends with somebody crying or somebody covered in blood. <laughs> and I said yes, that's exactly it because we've the thing about Soho is that thing like, and I say this as a man, so I I can't even why well, I can imagine what it's like for the two of you. But there's a thing in Soho that after midnight and especially after two o'clock, the energy changes mm. and something that is like sort of has been fun up until a point. There's just a different energy. It's almost like the chemistry of the entire place changes. And I've known that even just like working on films and going home late at night, that there's something sort of like that feels like and especially like if, you know, um, alcohol is involved or anything else the chance of making some very bad decisions is very high. The chance of running into somebody who is not who they say they are is very high. Mm. Even on the first night in the 60s, not giving anything away, like Matt Smith presents himself as something which maybe he is not. But that is exactly what he would call himself because he's also deluding himself at the same time. Yeah, we've all met Matt Smiths in our life. Yeah. <laughs> not actually Matt Smith, but Matt's oh, character, obviously. Matt. Let's clear that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask about, um, I mean, music obviously is, is such a big part of this. And you've done this great thing where I think there's only one real moment where you experience Ellie's contemporary music, if that's right. You know, in terms of the actual music that would be playing around her world now. Obviously, she chooses to listen to the music of that period, but... I think there's like there's one where the fact the Halloween party isn't it where it kind of yeah. it's the it's kind of current music. Yeah, um, I, I guess in the student union she's not picking the music, so it was yeah. one chance to get Susie and the Banshees in there. <laughs> There is, but there is a scene earlier on when she's in like the um, there's a sort of party in the halls of residence and she's listening to the kinks on her headphones. But the party is playing Jamie XX, weirdly like a track that Jamie gave to me, which he hasn't released. So it's kind of like there's a there's a sort of exclusive Jamie XX tracks buried wow. in there. 
But I did like what we did is we matched up the tempos. So like the Jamie XX and the Kinks is at the same tempo playing at the same time. Baby, you don't know what you're saying because you're a victim of pride. But then there's a line in that scene, which is something that somebody said to me, where Thomason is listening to the kinks in this noisy sort of house halls of residence party. And then a guy, an annoying guy, what was the name of the character? I think sort of like, um, uh, like Wasn't uh, he drunk sleazy ass- drunk. Yeah, sleazy oh, drunk or drunk asshole. Drunk asshole, yeah. Drunk <laughs> asshole. Prick. But he, like, he takes her headphones off, listens to the kinks and says, why are you listening to this granny shit? How old are you? Now, when I was 16 at a house party um, in 1990 uh, of this girl that I really had a crush on, Joe, she knows who she is. Um, <laughs> I put some music on and my compilation tape had the kinks on it and like Victoria was playing. And another guy, Gavin, you know who you are as well, heard the kinks on the stereo. This is in 1990. He goes, who put this old music on? <laughs> He goes, what the fuck is this? Like, and I, it, it scarred me so oh. much that he'd like, that my taste in music had been called into ridicule in front of this girl that I really fancied that I'm think I'm thinking about it still to this day. So Joe and Gavin, I hope you see the movie and Gavin, I hope you're very ashamed of what you do. <laughs> yeah, I love that you put him in there. Brilliant. <laughs> um, were you, were you with, the, with the, the music you're talking about having this playlist and stuff? Is it on? Is it on in that room when you're talking about the film and you're you're writing it? Is is it you know is it is it audible? Have you got it? Is it kind of you know party yeah. vibes in the room? There was somebody in the next office to us who I think the third time in a row that we played Sandy Shaw's puppet on a string it broke, <laughs> and they came in and said, "Can you turn your stereo down?" <laughs> I mean, the thing about it, like most of the songs, I feel like a lot of songs of that period and it's sort of like it's a particular time of like sort of early to sort of mid to late 60s, not quite going into kind of psychedelia and stuff or late 60s stuff. And no like Beatles or Stones, but focusing almost exclusively on the female singers of the time, Dusty Springfield, Petula Clark, Cilla Black and um, Sandy Shaw. And then and then even some of the other ones around it, like the, the Peter and Gordon song that like starts the movie. There's something like they're so like sort of great, like sort of melodic songs, but they're really emotional, sometimes even like feel operatic and melodramatic. And it's always something with those songs that they feel like stained with tears. And so a lot of those songs I felt like were so kind of like just dead on for what we were trying to do. So I, I sort of zeroed in on a particular mood within those songs and, and those singers. 
I think as well, you kind of, well, I did anyway, when, you know, as you went through the film, you start thinking about what some of these actual artists would have had to have gone through in that time to be taken seriously as artists, to fulfill their dreams, you know, as, as, as pop stars and stuff. And it's kind of, and I think that's a really clever thing about the film is that there's kind of almost layers to it in a way. And you can kind of, the more you think about it, there's more that you unpeel about. It makes you think about things. I think it's really, really clever. I don't know if that was intentional or not with the kind of idea of these female artists of the time, you know, your Sellers, your Sandy Shaws, your... Yeah, I mean, you know, Matt Smith's character, kind of the first thing he says is like, um, he says, Cilla Black work, started as a coat check girl. Are you willing to work your way up? Now, that comment is very loaded in terms of what he's suggesting. But, you know, yeah. Cilla Black was the coat check girl at the cavern and, you know, obviously had like a world-class set of pipes and then, you know, like sort of takes off on her own journey but you know we we know this now and like but obviously kind of like the sort of the dark stories of showbiz and what happens at the bottom rung of the ladder are like unfortunately myriad more more than we'll ever know yeah. um and and that was something that obviously can't help but inform the film and um diana Rigg, oh my goodness i don't i don't quite know what to say about her apart from it's just a joy to be able to watch her on screen and yeah no, I mean, I think we. I feel the same way. Even like now that she's no longer with us, I. It's that thing where I can be sad about her not being here, or I can just feel fortunate and happy that we got to know her and work with her at all. And the great thing for both me and Christy is not only did we get to work with her, but also, you know, just I mean, it, it continued past the shoot where gossipy brunches with campari and sodas <laughs> and then even into the lockdown before she she got ill i would speak to her probably as much as my own mother and usually like call her up and we'd be talking about what films she'd been watching on talking pictures tv mm. um so i have all of those memories beyond just the thing of being on set like she has a scene in the movie like um even just watching it i started to forget that i was at work I'm 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 not thinking about like a director looking at a take. I'm just sitting there thinking Dame Diana Rigg is talking and she's amazing and uh, you know just sort of so kind of like hypnotic um in her scenes and so that was amazing. And then and then obviously like Rita Tushingham and Terence Stamp as well mm. to be able to kind of like then be a part of the movie and and to bring their perspective of the time to it as well was just extraordinary. At what point did you, you, know, you said earlier that, that um, Anya, when you talked her way back, was, was playing the part of, of Ellie. Um, at what point did you, did you decide to switch that and, and, and bring in, give her the Sandy part and then bring T Thomasine, who is just, I mean, she's extraordinary. And I mean, such a chameleon as well in terms of the journeys and the characters that she, she kind of brings to the surface through this, this one person in this film, I think is fantastic. I mean, I think it's the thing where you sort of like you chart the journey of the film and obviously her performance, but even what she looks like, you know, when you kind of like watch the end of the film and if you have to kind of start it again and then you see her in the first scene, it's like she just she is just a chameleon in terms of like. And um, what happened with Annie was it was during the first draft is as we wrote the first draft and the Sandy part kind of got bigger and much more detailed and there were more scenes. And it was also having seen Anya grow up on screen in, in the, the three years since The Witch and seeing what other parts she'd done and even just seeing her on the red carpet or doing kind of fashion shoots, you're like, hi, hey, you know what? 
And, you know, because Annie is one of those people who feels like a movie star that could have existed in the silent period or in the 30s or in the 60s. So that became, um, that was obvious. And I just had to make sure that she was okay with that, which she she actually said, I'd love to play Sandy, I, I you know. So as soon as that was kind of um, settled, she was the first person cast. We went looking for Eloise and Naira Park was the first person to mention to me, what about Thomas and McKenzie from Leave No Trace? And I must admit, Thomas and McKenzie and Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace is so naturalistic. You'd be forgiven for thinking that she didn't actually live in the woods. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like you watch that movie thinking, is that, is, is that real? Is she like the real person? Because she's so, so kind of like uh, just amazingly real and you're just not sure if it's a non-actor but of course then I found out who she was and then she seems like well she's capable of anything so it was as soon as she had met me about the movie and said that she wanted to do it she was like the favorite and then it all worked out and it's just incredible yeah Jojo Rabbit as well it's incredible because every time I would speak to her like on set and everything like that when she'd be in character I'd forget that she was from New Zealand and now when I hear her with her Kiwi accent I'm like Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. You're not from Somerset. OK, well done. <laughs> well, the other weird thing is that she's she was 18 making the movie and um, oh, she is, man. She was actually 18. I think I met her when she was 17. And when when I met her, the first thing I said to her saying, was there anything in the script that made you uncomfortable or that you you thought you you wouldn't want to do that scene? She said, no, no, no. And she said later in an interview, I was lying. <laughs> <laughs> which is like so but here's the thing is that i like she came to london to make the movie and so thomason coming to Lo- london as an 18 year old to make the movie and eloise coming to london as an 18 year old student in the movie and now just inextricably linked i think for both me and her because i think and she's oh. in every single scene it's like running this emotional marathon she's so incredible in it but it was also something that was like a big journey for her, you know. Yeah, I'm about to run out of time, but um, uh, uh, this experience of you guys working together just—it's—it's it's created something really special. Um, and I hope that this is maybe something that might work together again on another project. I don't know if you've got plans to, but I—I I, I think that it's a—it's a great partnership. Well, I know where you live. You'd have to move. <laughs> We like hanging out, and I think there's that point where sort of at some point they're just sitting around bullshitting turns into coming up with a new story. So I think hopefully it'll happen organically. Um, listen, we haven't even talked about um, Stephen Price and and you know and how how brilliant his his work is, and it's not an easy thing as well when you have to fit in with all that incredible existing music, you know, and 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 make an, an impact there. What I will say about him is that we he wrote some of the score before we started shooting i have a long history with steve mm. and like steve is is very approachable and, and also sometimes like composers if there's a lot of songs in it as well they can get a bit precious about how to kind of like claw out their score within within all that but the great thing about steve is because he's such a pop fan as well there's lots of moments in the movie and this is not dissimilar to baby driver where he is making music that is complementary to the songs even the way that some songs ends and the score starts a couple of interesting things about the score number one is that we had some of it before we even started shooting so sometimes i did auditions with the score playing like especially some of the kind of like the creepier scenes we'd actually be able to play the music and play the music on set which is always a good thing for like a scary movie is to play some scary music and everybody gets in the zone a lot quicker
the other interesting thing is that one of our sort of like references for sort of temp music was um some of the Ennio Morricone scores from the giallo thrillers of the late 60s and early 70s. And in a lot of those scores, he has like a female session singer, like doing, you know, in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, there's a, the, the main line is a, is a woman singing, la, 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 la. Now you have to pay for that song. Um, but <laughs> we had that as temp and we, that was the idea was like, let's get a, a female session singer to do those bits. I suggested Steve, why don't we get Anya to do those bits? So then I called Anya and said, hey, this is going to sound crazy, but would you come in and be a session singer on the score? Because wouldn't it be amazing if like your voice is throughout the entire score? So in any of those vocal bits in the score, it's Anya Taylor-Joy singing. Wow. Oh, amazing. That's so great. Listen, it's so great to see you both virtually, hopefully in person next time. Um, Chrissy, it's great to see you and to be able to say well done as well on, on everything up to this point. And Edgar, it's always a pleasure, my friend. And um, thank you so much, guys, and huge congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully see you soon. Yeah, bye, guys. Thank you.
score to last night in Soho. That's You're My World by Stephen Price featuring Anya Taylor-Joy rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Edgar Wright, Christy Wilson-Cairns. My huge thanks to Edgar and Christy for taking the time to talk to me. What a fabulous partnership they make. Last Night in Soho is on general release now. Go and see it. I think Edgar's created a whole new genre of film, to be honest with this. Uh, with both the soundtrack and Stephen's scores also available via Good Pals at Backlot Music. Head to edithbowman.com to catch my previous conversations with Edgar and indeed Christie's writing partner on 1917, Sam Mendes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast if you get a moment. Apologies once again for my croakiness. Uh, it's uh, COVID related, but I promise to be up and well and fighting fit with a less gravelly voice in the coming weeks. In fact, this Thursday, hopefully I'm going to sound better by then, it's none other than the utter legend that is Hans Zimmer. I demand the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.